Welcome to Radio Uninvited, the podcast. I'm Bryce Noble with Bob Johnson. Today we are joined by Chef Andrew Gruel. He's a restaurant owner, entrepreneur, and a culinary media star. We talk about his career, the difficulties of being a restauranteur, and the future of the food industry. Without further ado, here's Andrew. Uh, Andrew's, uh, you know, he's an American chef. He's a television personality, but he's known uh, for his uh, media work as well. It's uh, in TV and uh, radio. So he's been on the Food Network. He's been on the Cooking Channel. When you're looking at, at his list here, a Hallmark Channel. He's also had uh, gained some notoriety here in the last year, sticking up for the uh, small businesses, for the restaurants more specifically, and struggling with the COVID regulations and trying to keep these uh, businesses open uh, so that he got a lot of notoriety for that last year. So I actually have a lot of questions for him, but I really appreciate uh, uh, you coming out. Uh, I was going to ask you if you could kind of give us a little bit about your origin story, uh, like how you came up and how you got to where you are right now. Let, let me just shoot something in there, too, because I read something about Andrew that I'm just I, I, I admire you for doing this, Andrew. You went right in and raised money for the out of uh, work restaurant workers. And you deserve a lot of accolades for that just to go out there. And I think what it was uh, like two hundred thousand dollars in the first couple of days uh, where we went into lockdown. So I just want to make sure that people know that this is the Andrew Gruel that we're we're talking to right now. Could you give us a little background on your origin story, who your influences were and how you came up to get to where you are now? Great, great. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate that kind intro. My origin story is nothing too exciting. I mean, I don't have a story about me growing up and learning how to roll pasta with my grandmother or anything like that. It's not too, it's not too, I'm, I'm more along the lines of the uh, microwave generation. I grew up with two working parents. I uh, learned the hard work and ethics of, of um, pushing yourself at an early age and taking on jobs at an early age. And you know, those happen to be in the restaurant industry. So I started developing skills, more hard work skills than I would say specific cooking skills. However, as I went and uh, did go to college for something completely outside of the restaurant scope, I ended up back in restaurants and realized I shouldn't be spending my money in college for doing doing something. I don't necessarily know if I want that to become my career. So I left college and ultimately traveled around the country and a little bit around the world cooking and learning the the art of, um, you know, the art of not just food, but the art of restaurants and hospitality and people. And that led me to ultimately open my own restaurant group, which my goal in, in starting Slapfish, which was my first entrepreneurial venture, big entrepreneurial venture was to actually kind of bring sustainable seafood to the masses. I had done a short stint at the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, where I was trying to teach chefs and consumers about sustainable seafood. It's a passion project of mine. You know, I, I would call myself kind of a uh, capitalist-minded environmentalist, and I knew that there was an opportunity in the seafood space because our per capita seafood consumption in the United States is actually pretty low, and it's one of the last real kind of, um, uh, you know, if it, it's one of the last businesses that's true and wild when it comes to the ocean, but then also the opportunities on the aquaculture side. But so much of the confusion with seafood is getting people to eat less seafood. So I said, how can I create a model where people eat more of the right types of seafood? And my answer was doing so in a more fast, casual setting, giving the quality of fine dining at the cost and convenience of faster food. My my culinary um, uh, mantra, if you will, is always about giving the best that you possibly can to first and foremost, your employees and your team members and, and then the, the customers. And if, if, pro, if even a small kind of trickle of profit flows from there, 
then you've done you've done well all around triple bottom line right people planet profit so mm-hmm. that's a bit of uh what drives me and what brought me to where i am today who are your influences like uh, i was watching a little bit of an interview you had on reason tv last year that was excellent and uh, did you was it was at boudin or how about bobby flay he's a favorite of mine who were kind of your favorites or people who pushed you towards uh, making this your passion yeah, I mean, look, Bobby Flay, you know, I think that from a culinary perspective, Bobby Flay is phenomenal when it comes to just like real raw flavors. I love watching his cooking and what he's done with just being making food approachable over the years. I mean, you know, the guy is a, is a titan. I love Anthony Bourdain more for the human side of it. I actually read a lot of Anthony Bourdain's novels prior to his culinary writing. I don't know if you know this, but Anthony Bourdain was kind of like this mystery murder novelist who wrote books that revolved around the kitchen, bone in a throat and the like. And I had come across that. I was a bit of a book nerd. My dad was a real mystery novel kind of junkie himself. So he actually started bringing me Anthony Bourdain novels when I got into cooking and I fell in love with his written word. And then ultimately he became, you know, a real force within the industry. Um, I've sorry, I've got a I've got an audience here with me. <laughs> I, uh, uh, but other influences, um, you know, for me, I grew up watching the old PBS shows, right? Yon Kang Cook, um, Jacques Pepin, Julia Child, um, you know, uh, um, who um, um, I'm I'm drawing I'm drawing. Well, those blank. are pretty. Those are those are good right ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know what's funny is I've seen some of these faces recently on like now you have all this alternative TV that you get with your kind of like internet based TVs and the BBC has had a lot of those old personalities doing kind of new age cooking shows. I just came across one yesterday. My kids accidentally turned the channel to it and I got sucked back into that kind of PBS uh, dump and stir model cooking show. It was, it was a, uh, it was a pretty, pretty neat experience. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's rule, right? I always want to call you like David Grawl. I, 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 you know, yeah. the Foo Fighters guy, right? Do you get that a lot? Because I, I think I said Boudin versus Bourdain too. I'm, I'm kind of a little bit, a little bit soft today on that. But yeah. is that it's gruel, correct? It is gruel, like the porridge, which definitely uh, makes for <laughs> some, some pretty good yeah. Twitter jokes. Yeah, I bet. So those were your influences. Um, so how did you then connect to kind of the media end of it? How did you get like connected to the Food Network and and these types of things? to build, kind of build up your name that way. How, how did you cross path? Like what was your process? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd always been kind of a loud mouth and anytime there was the opportunity to, you know, step out, um, I would, uh, you know, early on when I took over a restaurant project in New Hampshire, when I was like 21, 22, I had a radio show called cooking with gruel. Um, and then we did some PBS stuff. So I started kind of developing a little bit of a reel at a young age. Um, but mo- more so just right for fun, like food network, was starting to get big in the early 2000s but it you know food and food entertainment is nothing what it is today back when i was kind of going through and getting my chops so it was was more just kind of fun and funny and it was it was more from the perspective of kind of archiving some of these experiences and uh when i opened slapfish we had no money to do so and nobody was going to invest in us coming out of the 2007, 2008 recession, especially in a restaurant, somebody who didn't have kind of those deep financial roots, private equity, et cetera. So we ended up just taking, uh, you know, I took like, I leveraged out all my credit cards and I started it as a food truck. And this was before food trucks were really the thing. Kogi had just come onto the scene, which is really kind of the godfather. Roy Choi was the godfather of food trucks on the West coast. And then there were a few other, quote, gourmet food trucks that were popping up. And I used the food truck 
craze to launch Slapfish strictly from the perspective of building brand equity so that I could then raise for a brick and mortar to prove the concept out. But they it became so hot so quickly. In eight months, I went from one to five food trucks um, and it was like its own enterprise. I knew it was going to crash, but I tried to capitalize on it as quickly and as aggressively as possible. And that did get me into a couple cooking shows from the um that were they were cooking channel was trying to do kind of these food truck shows and then ultimately they brought me on as a judge for a food network canada and u.s co-production called uh, food truck face off and that was my shoe in with food network and i went back and forth from food network to fyi and then back to food network and did a little bit of that tv stuff but all of this was kind of in the background while i was building out the slapfish empire no that that's very interesting and i wanted to talk to you about uh slapfish now last year you know, as Bob had alluded to, all the, the money that you were raising trying to help restauranteurs uh, through COVID. Can you tell me like some of the biggest challenges in your industry and then uh, kind of what your frustration was and, and, and kind of how that built up to a head? Certainly. Well, first and foremost, you know, I think people get it confused because look, Dave Portnoy and what he did with Barstool for, you know, love him or hate him, what he did helping specific restaurants stay afloat um, was amazing. And I didn't want to kind of cut, copy and paste his model. But what we saw here locally was that the people who were really struggling in California specific were the restaurant workers, the employees, because they had, there was the original shutdown in early March, April, May, right? And everybody was kind of confused, didn't know what was going on. And then restaurants opened back up in the summertime. And there was a, it was kind of this cash flow of uh, just people grabbing restaurants and businesses, grabbing so much of this PPP money and trying to figure out what the next step was going to be. And that was really supposed to trickle down for the employees. And we know that it didn't always trickle down for the employees. And then they shut down restaurants in California uh, right at the same time that they all of this unemployment funding went dry because they found out they had misappropriated like $85 billion to fraudsters and businesses that shouldn't have gotten a lot of this money, especially the unemployment money. So the state of California, a lot of people don't know this. They basically told the employees who were applying in November and December of early 20 of uh, 2020, end of 2020, they were like, look, you know, we'll, we'll approve the unemployment benefits, but our coffers are empty. And until we figure out what's going on with the new administration and we get federal funding, we basically can't pay out your unemployment claims. Um, or they were just delaying them in perpetuity. Plus, restaurants had just been shut down again. Outdoor dining was closed in beautiful, sunny Southern California, which was absurd. And all of these people were left destitute going into the holidays. So that's when we said, okay, we're going to raise money to try and help restaurant workers, but really just bridge fund, right? $1,000, $1,500 to get us to January when they said they were going to refresh the coffers, which we know ended up not happening, which is why we ended up raising more money. Um, so yeah, that's where we just kind of did that on when we ended up raising over a half a million dollars and helping out these independent restaurant workers. And then ultimately the money did distill down into the unemployment, into unemployment. However, that coincided with this kind of rapid boomerang of the economy based on a lot of money that was being pumped into the economy. So then workers were able to go and get jobs and they kind of had the upper hand with restaurants. Now, what was very interesting there is we never had issues getting employees. Um, we never lost the employees. We kept them on. We took, we took on debt to do so. Um, cause none of the money we raised went to our own, um, enterprise that we, we thought that would be unethical. Um, and we didn't want to do that. We did that out of our own pockets. So, uh, it was a real interesting kind of couple months for us and my family specifically, because we were trying to keep our own restaurant floats. We had just had our fourth child 
And it was, I mean, within like weeks of that. And it was like me and my kids and my wife driving around, handing off checks to people and paying off landlords and people's utilities and trying to sift ourselves through the scammers because we got hit hard by the scammers ourselves. Um, So we had to start figuring out who was really needed the money and who was just a scammer, just the two, just our family. That was it. So I just, uh, just want to remind our listeners who are speaking with Andrew Gruel, who's uh entrepreneur, food network guy, chef, and all around good guy. It sounds like, and you know, I think a lot of people are thankful for uh, the effort that you put in uh, at, as you just mentioned that sacrificing uh, your own, uh, businesses to help others. No, and and, he, and don't forget too. He has an amazing Twitter feed. That's where I that's where I found uh, Chef Gruel, and uh, I followed him for years. I retweet and quote tweet all this stuff. And I I like extreme foods too. I just like these big drippy juicy looking things. And he followed me back at some point. I mean, he's he's always good to interact with with people. And I was like really really jazzed when he when he followed me back. But I, I'm in that same thing. There, there's something powerful about that high res picture that just kind of help, helps brighten your day. So I, I love your, your timeline. It's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. A lot of that's also culinary hyperbole. People get mad at me. They're like, how are we expected to eat this? I'm like, look, you're on Twitter. Not, you know, nothing is real here. Just take a step back, take a breath and appreciate the colors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's colorful and it's drippy. I, I, I highly suggest people follow uh, Chef you. On, on Twitter. That. But I, So we were talking about regulation real quick and, and you kind of got kind of put the forefront of uh, like national media for a while, kind of challenging, uh, you know, Cal- uh, California Governor Newsom's edicts in the county, probably in Orange County more specifically. Right. But outside of that, uh, what can you tell me, like the, the, just in general, like the regulations for restauranteurs just abroad in the United States, is, is it how do you feel about that? Do you think they're in tune with the business? Are they, are they too restrictive? Are we losing something out in the quality of food? And is it different like the United States versus other countries significantly? Yeah. I mean, let's kind of start small and then get broader from there, but let's just talk about the products and the food itself. There are, there's a a ton of regulation as to what we can and can't serve everything from regulating local farms and small businesses from a, from a wholesale perspective into a into obscurity right basically getting rid of the small businesses getting rid of the small local farmers um and transferring that business into kind of the monolith of our food supply system you've got one or two massive food processors and everything distills down from there which homogenizes the food that we serve and i think that it the overregulation itself ironically is making people sick right so it's forcing us into a lot of highly processed kind of government run food versus and I'll, and I'll use a specific example like you can't serve unpasteurized cheese in the United States you can't serve unpasteurized cheese or unpasteurized milk from any of these local farmers because theoretically there's bacteria there which they think can lead to listeria or any types of diseases i mean it's a numbers game but then instead you kind of have these mass factory farms that make people sick i mean we're getting thousands of people die every year because of e coli and lettuce um, but yet we can't support some of these small local farmers and it's good bacteria and that ruins the local food supply system. So number one, we overregulated. It's very centralized. It's very top down. Uh, it's about it's about kind of doing this very broad federal cost benefit analysis versus hyper local management of food systems. 
And I think that's a huge issue with the food that we eat. It leads to hypertension. It leads to this over imbalance of omega-6 fatty acids in our diets um, because of all the corn that a lot of the meat, the, the, the beef and stuff are fed, the cattle are fed. And I could go on for days about that. From a local perspective or a state-run perspective, what's happening right now is, is that politics slip into small businesses from everything from wages and taxes to um, just developing different agencies that are going to run and manage all the food and the safety and the regulation and the oversight of your business. And when you start to have so many government agencies in your business managing the oversight, number one, the diffusion of responsibility takes effect where everybody just assumes the other guy's going to take care of it. So you actually have more of a haphazardly run business than you would if it was a single owner entrepreneur. Number two, um, they don't and by they, I mean a lot of these government agencies, what they don't realize is that restaurants and small businesses are not out to screw the workers, not out to screw people. They're just trying to survive. So when the taxes go up, they're always going to be looking for ways in order to cut costs so that they can survive. Um, if we are instead rewarded for paying employees more or reaching some of these goals that come down from a political perspective by having taxes cut in the long run, I think that that'll actually help the local economies and help the community. So I think that's also another piece that's consistently ignored is how small businesses and small restaurants can truly be examples of how free enterprise should work. And restaurants are the ones that get taken out because everybody thinks they can become a restaurateur and it seems like it's the easy industry to step into lower barriers of entry so we also become a target for a lot of these kind of government programs to try and take out the restaurants to scare people away from becoming entrepreneurs maybe that's the conspiracy theorist side of me but that's kind of my overall take on this boy that's really complicated with all that it's it's amazing and and, and the, i had a friend who was uh, had owned a restaurant for a while and it's just it's such a thin margin business right it, it's like what like two three percent at the top and so these little shifts in regulation or or the other environment variables i could understand why this was so disruptive during covid but what what do you think about that and what are the long-term effects you think of some of these policies that uh, we've had to implement well when you get look when you put the basic, you know, kind of American, uh, the, the American economics, right? The more barriers of entry you put up, the better it is for the big guys, right? You see a lot more consolidation. You start to see private equity go into some of these more centralized, um, multi-unit, massive businesses that can oversee and run hundreds and hundreds of restaurants. And then you lose the flavor of Main Street. You lose those one-off independent entrepreneurs because the barriers of entry are so high and there's not an accessibility to capital for a new restaurant tour to get into the game, to get into the space. Instead, you're just kind of the low line fruit is taking maybe 1% from somebody who owns 500 restaurants, which equates to a ton of money. And they think that they've solved the problem on a government level, but they've really kind of vanilla the watered down the flavor of all the restaurants and moved money from kind of either Main Street to Washington, D.C., in many cases from Main Street to Silicon Valley. And that seems to be what's happening in within the restaurant industry. AB 257 here in California, which is known as the fast food bill, effectively, has now really uh, um, what they've done is any restaurant where you have 20 plus locations or any city where there's 200,000 plus people, you're subject to the new terms of this bill, or you will be, which puts 
a new council in place to run your business, right? You no longer have single say in your business. There's a council that the government puts in place. It's four representatives from the government, four representatives from a a local kind of union and workers association, and then four representatives from ownership. Well, we just know by the nature of kind of unions and government, who's voting them in, those eight representatives are going to vote on a block. So you are always going to be the voting minority of your own business when you put your money up into your own business. It is a very scary prospect. And the goal for AB257 is for that to become the national framework for restaurants um, nationwide. But here's the interesting piece. It is labeled, similar to the Inflation Act, it is labeled the uh, Workers' Rights Act and safety. Uh, So they talk about wage theft violations and workers' safety. Nobody is more in tune to what workers deserve than myself. I mean, that was the genesis of our entire workers' bill. But only 1.5% of all wage theft is attributed to restaurants. So why restaurants, right? Why not target some of the other industries where you're actually seeing the wage theft and safety violations? Well, as I mentioned previously, it's because restaurants are the low line fruit. That's the easy industry for people to get into. So if they scare you from getting into that industry, then maybe you'll think twice about being an entrepreneur again. Yeah, the, the name of some of these bills are, I always smirk when I read them. It's like amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah. You name it a certain way, and people just go, "Okay, well, I'm again, I'm for the workers," and then you just yeah. kind of move on to the next thing, and nobody ever even bothers to read what's what's really happening underneath. Uh, re- read your legislation, people. Yeah. So, is, isn't there is there a, is there a, a lobby for uh, for restauranteurs at, in Washington? Yeah, I mean, yeah. there is. There's a nation, National Restaurant Association, and there's various lobbies, but you, know, you got to look at it too. A lot of those guys get their funding from some of the 100, 200 plus unit restaurant chains that I had mentioned previously. So it's kind of hard for some of the independent one offs in each local city to be able to stand up for themselves when they're working 80, 90 hours a week just to try and keep the doors open. I, it's difficult for me, I mean, to even do anything extracurricular, if you will. Um, in the midst of trying to grow a restaurant right now. And, um, you know, I've been doing this now as an entrepreneur for over 10 years. So you're still learning every single day and uh, it makes it pretty difficult. And, And that's just one issue. I mean, you know, when it comes to the independent restaurants, the fact that they're getting rid of gas any gas powered equipment in restaurants and we're going to have to use all electric, especially here in California. How is the local one-off Chinese food restaurant going to do walk fired food? You know, how are we going to be able to get pizza ovens hot enough in order to cook, you know, kind of quote wood fired pizza or any of that? I mean, it's going to completely gut the ethnic restaurants in almost all of these small communities. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely, I'm, I like to think of lighter regulations as, as a norm, but you definitely need them. It's, but it, boy, it's a tricky balance, isn't it? Like just one little change locally uh, to the law. Yeah. Can yeah, yeah, of course, them. of course. And I think we all want, no, I don't think it well, except for the, the hard, the hardest core uh, libertarian, we all understand that these things need to be managed and there needs to be a framework um, uh, and even micro bureaucracy put in place. But if it can be done on a local level where you see the people who are making these decisions, as opposed to being done, you know, 3,500 miles away, then I think that there's a bit more of a kind of customized regulatory effect that could take place where you have a lot less pushback and a lot more kind of enterprising opportunity that still remains within your community. That's interesting. Well, I, I, I see a, maybe a political future for Andrew Grohl. Is this, yeah. uh, 
something yeah, nah, stuff. on the horizon there? It's, it's much easier to shoot my mouth off and then put <laughs> a burger. Sometimes, uh, sometimes you got to get out front, though, and you know, really, you you've shown that you can get into the community and organize the community. So, uh, you know, don't be discouraged. He knows the industry right. very well. Get away from regulation and go to some of the uh, activist uh, stuff that you've done, or it, was it the non-for-profit, was that called Seafood for the Future? Can you go back to that? I think you touched on it, right? That, the early yeah. Point. Yeah, Seafood for the Future was a was a non-profit that was kind of a partnership between the Aquarium of the Pacific and the Pacific Life Foundation, which is really their non-profit arm. And the goal of that program was really just to get chefs and restaurant tourists to educate consumers about sustainable seafood. Over 80% of the seafood consumed in California is done so in restaurants. So we figured that uh, the way to kind of educate the public is through chefs and restaurant tours. Having been having having had a chef background with a passion for marine conservation, marine stewardship, and ultimately seafood. And then I also did go back to business school and got my business degree in food marketing. It was kind of the perfect position for me to really market some of these principles, work with chefs directly, and then also promote and um, almost evangelize the cause surrounding sustainable seafood, which back in 2008, 2009, when I started that, that was a, in our, it was kind of just an idea that had no roots. You know, sustainable seafood was a joke. Nobody knew what that meant. So I almost had to define the word um, in general amongst chefs. So we started that nonprofit. It was a three-year program. And then ultimately the, it was rolled into the Aquarium of the Pacific. Um, and then that's when I kind of stepped out and said, look, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to actually stand behind everything I've been preaching for three years, as opposed to just keep continue putting my hand out and, and then standing on a soapbox. So there's kind of three areas when it comes to sustainable seafood. In general, right now, what's happening is, is that a lot of the wild fish stocks are being overfished or they're reaching kind of their maximum sustainable yield. So there's certain mechanisms by which you can manage the wild fish stocks. And then one way to relieve pressure, especially when we have a growing world population, one way to relieve fishing pressure off these wild stocks is to um, encourage, foster and innovate when it comes to aquaculture or fish farming in the ocean. But you've got to be able to do that in a sustainable manner as well so that it's a net positive and that the fish farming activity doesn't harm the surrounding ecosystem because then it's a pointless endeavor. So that's number two. And then number three, generally, the idea of sustainable seafood is getting people to eat more seafood because it's such a healthy protein, but eat the right types of seafood. Seafood that is very healthy. So in general, that's also cleaning the kind of surrounding marine ecosystem and making sure it's not high in kind of the benthic environment isn't polluted and it's not high your fish isn't higher in mercury and the way in which you feed and farm the fish is done so in a real healthy manner. So there's kind of three facets to it. There's so much advancement over the years, the past decade, two decades when it comes to aquaculture. And there's this one area now called stock fortification where they're actually farming fish to a certain degree, right? When in their childlike stage and then they're releasing it into the wild and then they're catching it from a wild capture fishery, which is that perfect, perfect model of farming and wild. Actually, 60 plus percent of all wild Alaskan seafood starts off in a hatchery, um, which is a good thing, uh, although they don't necessarily like that information being released. But that is a good thing because you want to embrace that. But there's a lot of negative connotation when it comes to aquaculture. So I think there's a huge marketing machine right now behind trying to rebrand farm seafood as the, as a good thing. And of course, that has its own set of politics. So we are managing our oceans. We're managing our fisheries. Yes, there's issues. However, you got to understand the ocean is incredibly resilient. I'm more worried about humans than I am about seafood.
I'm more worried about the earth than I, you know, kind of terrestrial than I am about aqua, you know, kind of the, the aquamarine environment. Uh -huh. However, we still need to focus on both.